0: Music <laughs> persistent tradition of a strange white race preceding the Cherokee. Some of the stories even going so far as to locate their former settlements and to identify them as the authors of the ancient works found in the country. From Myths of the Cherokee by James Mooney. Hey, y'all, so we are back with an all new full-length episode today, but first, I've got a few announcements for you. So, if you haven't had a chance to check out the feed drop that we did the other day, then I have some exciting news. I'm going to be hosting our first-ever Southern Gothic live event down in Franklin, Tennessee, on Saturday, April 30th. It'll be a little different than most podcasting events, as it's actually going to be a walking tour through the historic downtown area and right on in, to a dark cemetery. <laughs> of course, I'll be talking a bit about some local legends, dark history, the Civil War, and of course I'm going to tell some ghost stories. So please come on out and join us. We'll even have a special guest, my friend Eric from the Unseen Paranormal podcast will be coming out. Now space is limited and we've already sold a little more than half the tickets, so be sure to book your spot today. Just head over to franklinwalkingtours.com click on the Grim and Ghostly Tour and sign up for April 30th. You'll see it on the drop-down menu, Special Southern Gothic Tour. The event will start at 7 at Landmark Booksellers on Main Street, and will end around 9-ish or so, maybe. I mean, I don't know. We'll be in a cemetery, so who knows, right? So come on out, y'all. I'd love to have an opportunity to meet as many of you as possible. Now, if you can't make it up to Middle Tennessee this month, I will be out and about this summer attending several conventions, Brian and I both will be at the Haunted America Conference from June 24th through 25th in Alton, Illinois. And in August, it looks like I'll be headed to both the Dark History and Horror Convention in Urbana, Illinois on August 18th and 20th. And then on the following weekend, on August 26th through 28th, I'm going to be headed down to Dallas, Texas for one of my absolute favorite events of the year, the True Crime Podcast Festival. So if you have the opportunity and want to come out, I will leave links to all of these events in the show notes for you to get your tickets and make plans to come out. Now, last but not least, I just want to make sure that everyone knows that there is still time to sign up for our newsletter at southerngothicmedia.com, because at the end of the month, we're going to be giving away a signed copy of The Feminine Macabre Volume 3 to one lucky subscriber. So be sure to go do that before it's too late. And with that, that is all the news I've got for you today. So let's get going with the show and head on down to Georgia, where we're going to explore the legend of the Moon-Eyed People. top Ford Mountain, in the northwestern corner of Georgia, is an 885-foot-long rock wall that zigzags its way through the curves of the mountain. Though the ruins were constructed with stone taken from the surrounding region, the story behind the structure, when it was built, and by whom, has been a mystery for as long as anyone can remember. An archeological survey done in 1956 concluded only that the structure which is commonly referred to as Rockfort, quote, represents a prehistoric construction whose precise age and nature cannot yet be safely hazarded. As a result, numerous theories have arisen to explain the origins of this wall. Prior to the early 20th century, some posited that it was Spanish explorer, Hernando de Soto, who built it. Others, that it was the work of the Welsh Prince Madoc. Today, however, most say it was likely constructed around 500 CE by native peoples who lived in the area, and its purpose was not one of protection, but rather religious practice. Unfortunately, the truth about this infamous wall atop Fort Mountain may never be entirely uncovered. Tying this mystery into a centuries-old legend that its creators were the supposed residents of this region long before it had ever been inhabited by the Cherokee, a group who have become known in local lore as the Moon-Eyed People. My name is Brandon Shecksnyder. You are listening to Southern Gothic. Legend says that a unique, ancient race of people once inhabited the highlands of Lower Appalachia. A group known simply as the Moon-eyed people. Often they've been described as light-skinned with blonde hair and blue eyes, and they were uniquely handicapped by their inability to see during the day. This legend exists most prominently due to the oral tradition of the Cherokee people who purportedly encountered the ancient race upon their arrival in the region. However, the mystery as to who they were and where they went is far more complex. The first written account of the Moon-eyed people appeared in the 1797 publication, New Views of the Origin of the Tribes and Nations of America, published by Benjamin Smith Barton. Barton was an American naturalist, botanist, and physician who had a lifelong interest in Native Americans, and his work is now considered by scholars to be culturally significant for its information on early civilizations in North America. Barton introduces the Moon-eyed people citing a discussion he had with Colonel Leonard Marbury, a, quote, very intelligent gentleman who served as an intermediary between the American government and the Cherokee. He wrote, The Cherokee tells us that when they first arrived in the country which they inhabit, they found it possessed by certain moon-eyed people who could not see in the daytime. These wretches they expelled. Barton then goes on to claim that this group Marbury described may have been related to, or ancestors of the Guna, a group of indigenous people from Panama, whom the Welsh privateer and explorer Lionel Wafer encountered in the 1680s. Wafer lived with them for a time, and while among them, he documented the lives and customs of his hosts, as well as the environment in which they lived. Notably, among his descriptions are several pages devoted to so-called, quote, white Indians whose complexion he claims to be, quote, milk-white, lighter than any European. Today, it is known that the Guna people of Panama have one of the highest rates of albinism in the world, as approximately 1 in 150 Guna inherits the condition that results in exceedingly light skin, hair, and eyes. And of course, these light eyes are often incredibly sensitive to the sun. Wafer wrote specifically of this, in A New Voyage and Description of the Isthmus of America, published in 1699. He described those individuals with albinism as having a different shape to their eyes than the rest of the Guna, claiming that they came to a point in a shape like a crescent, and quote, From hence, and from their scene so clear as they do in a moonshiny night, we used to call them moon-eyed, for they see not very well in the sun, so that in the daytime they care not to go abroad, unless it be a cloudy, dark day. Clearly, Benjamin Smith Barton was familiar with Wafer's work, as he referenced it in his own. But interestingly, Barton's account concerning Marbury's description of the Moonite people makes no mention of the complexion of those people he linked the common name and light sensitivity to. Yet he still made the assumption that this was in fact a tribe of people albinism and ever since this has become part of the accepted legend of the indigenous tribe who predated the cherokee the next reference to the moon-eyed people came 26 years later in 1823 in his book the natural and aboriginal history of tennessee Historian John Haywood wrote that when the Cherokee originally came to the territory, they found, quote, white people living near the mouth of the Little Tennessee River. The groups then warred over the region for quite some time, and eventually, a treaty was made in which these people permanently left, never to be seen again. But in contrast to Barton's work, Haywood claimed that his source of information regarding the Cherokee came from leaders of the tribe themselves as opposed to an intermediary of European ancestry. Then, in 1902, James Mooney published the now well-known text, Myths of the Cherokee. Mooney states very clearly and early on in the book that, quote, there's a dim and persistent tradition of a strange white race preceding the Cherokee. He first examines the claims of Barton and Haywood, then adds two additional stories related to the idea. First is that of Harry Smith, a mixed-race man born in about 1815, who was related to a chief of the East Cherokee. Smith told Mooney that when he was a boy, an elderly woman passed down to him the old oral tradition that claimed a race of, quote, very small people, perfectly white, once lived for a time north of the Hiawassee River, near what is present day Murphy, North Carolina. The old woman then told Smith that these people eventually moved west. The second story that Barton presents was told by Colonel William Thomas, born in 1805, who was a white man adopted by the East Cherokee. And he told Mooney that he learned from the Cherokee that he also learned of the old oral tradition That there was once another race of people who lived on the bank of the Hiawassee, just as Smith had described. Thomas also confirmed that those people went west, quote, long before the whites came. Now early on in our research, we assumed that the legend of the Moonite people was likely nothing more than an embellished, hyperbolized, or even misunderstood version of an old native legend. This was because of the fact that the majority of tales that we've covered like this on Southern Gothic have not been based on primary sources offered by the people who originally told them, but rather on second-hand information and hearsay from those of European descent. We saw this in the singing river of Pascagoula, the tale of the wampus cat, and even the Georgia legend of the wog. And now... We see Barton, Haywood, and Mooney doing just that. They were telling stories that they had heard and presenting them through their own lens. But the more research that we did into the Moon-eyed people, the more complex we realize the history of it actually is. And there may be even more evidence of their existence than the secondhand Cherokee legends that we've just discussed. We'll explore some of these theories as to who these people were and where they may have come from after the break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she was... Or she, call the police. Or call the police, like <laughs> she should have, exactly. What did she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then from beneath the Hollywood sign is the gin joint for you. whether it has been influenced by the passing of time or the cultural influences of its story bearers, the legend of the Moon-Eyed people undoubtedly is a firm foundation in Cherokee tradition. However, one thing that seems to be missing from these tales is an explanation as to who exactly these people were and where they came from. But today, numerous theories have arisen to fill this gap of knowledge. And surprisingly, some have a firm foundation and historical facts. The most prominent theory involving the origins of the Moon-Eyed people is that they were a tribe of the infamous Welsh Indians. This group was first written about in 1898 in the book The Reverend Morgan Jones and the Welsh Indians of Virginia. As the title suggests, the publication tells the story of Reverend Morgan Jones, who in 1669 was living in the colony of Virginia. One day, while traveling through the wilderness, he and his companions, quote, fell into the hands of hostile natives. While captive, some of the colonists were apparently tortured and killed. But Jones, however, was saved by members of the Doeg tribe and large party said, because he spoke Welsh, which had turned out, quote, was also the language of the Doegs. While this publication was the first time the term Welsh Indians was used, the events of 1669 were far from the first time that an individual of European descent encountered an indigenous tribe that they believe spoke something similar to Welsh. In 1608, Welshman Captain Peter Wynne arrived in Jamestown, Virginia, and in November, he accompanied Captain Christopher Newport on an exploratory expedition in the surrounding wilderness. During this trip, the group encountered an indigenous tribe, and while they did not speak the same language as the Europeans, it was noted that the sound of the native's tongue was similar to Wynne's native Welsh. The captain was therefore assigned the task of translating for the colonial explorers, and as a result. When found, quote, they speak a far-differing language from the subjects of the Powhatan, the pronunciation being very like Welsh. It has since been confirmed that the indigenous people the Europeans encountered were the Monacan tribe, who spoke a Siouan language that is now extinct. But the reference to the contrast between the Monacan and Powhatan dialects are noteworthy because the Powhatans spoke an Algonquin language, and at the time, Virginia colonists were already interacting with the Powhatan people, so some would have at least become familiar with it. So the question then is how are some tribes of indigenous people in North America speaking a European-born language, or at least a version of it, when no known Englishman had stepped foot on the continent until the late 1400s or early 1500s? The answer is a man named Maddock a Welsh prince and explorer who, according to folklore, sailed to North America in 1170, three centuries prior to the arrival of Christopher Columbus in 1492. According to legend, Prince Madoc was the son of King Owen. He came to North America in order to flee violence in his homeland. Maddock and his men sailed across the ocean in three boats, stayed for 10 years, and then returned to his native country to convince even more men to join him. So they set sail once again, this time with a total of 10 boats. But after arriving in North America, Maddock and his men were never heard from again. According to lore, several of the men in Maddox's company decided to settle down and intermarry with the local Native Americans. And it's said that their descendants carried on the tradition of the Welsh language. Over the years, these people have been credited with the construction of numerous pre-Columbian landmarks, particularly in the Midwestern United States, but also the ruins on Fort Mountain in Georgia. But perhaps encouraging this theory is that for the Powhatan tribe and other speakers of Algonquin languages, the word they used for those who spoke languages other than theirs, like Suin, is Manduag, which is just similar enough to the name of the Welsh prince to be confusing. Yet the story of Matic didn't always involve North America or its indigenous people. Scholars today believe it has actually evolved out of a medieval story or poem about a grand sea voyage, although no original version of that story survives today. But the tale became most well-known during the reign of Elizabeth I, when English and Welsh writers began adapting it with the assertion that Matic was its protagonist. And why was this assertion necessary? Because if Matic arrived in North America in the 1100s, and that grants the right of discovery and therefore illegal possession of North America to England. As for those versions that make claims of intermarriage or the existence of native peoples of English ancestry, these additions were likely included after accounts of languages with supposed similarities to Welsh were reported. While this early desperation with the Welsh connection stem largely from the claim that it granted England the right to settle. Its persistence is somewhat more sinister, as there are some who want to claim that white people of European descent have been inhabitants of North America for at least as long as non-white indigenous people have, whether that is factual or not. In fact, when the historic marker for the mysterious ruins at Fort Mountain was unveiled in 1968, it actually even included as possible builders, quote, prehistoric white people. But it's important to note here that in the earliest documentation of the North American Moon-eyed people, there's in fact no reference to the way they look. An assumption, yes, but an outright description, no. It was with each retelling of the tradition that the Moon-eyed people gained white skin and more European-esque features. Over the centuries, no less than 13 Native American tribes have had claims thrust upon them that they are descended from the Welsh. But as of this episode's release, there's been no genetic or archaeological evidence gathered or discovered to support any such claim. Yet the repeated attempts to link the Moon-eyed people with the Welsh and Europeans persist, detracting from the fact that they are part of Cherokee legend and that whoever those people were They lived in an area that was desired by the Cherokee enough to fight for it. Today, some Native American scholars suggest that they may have been members of the Adena culture, which existed from about 500 BCE to 100 CE, in a time known as the early Woodland period. They say that they were likely called the Moon-Eyed People merely because they told time by watching the night sky. But as for where they went, you may never know. The Cherokee County Historical Museum in Murphy, North Carolina has a unique effigy on display that they believe to be a representation of the Moon-Eyed People of Cherokee legend. The three foot tall object depicts two conjoined figures who have round heads with disproportionately large eyes. It was found in 1841 by a local man named Felix Ashley, but it's believed to have been made centuries before, carved out of a single piece of sandstone by hand with the tapping of another rock. Of course, just like the legend of the Moon-Eyed People, the effigy's origin will likely forever remain a mystery the stories continue to grow. My name is Brandon Schexneider, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings Brianne and Brandon Snyder, with the support of listeners like you. This month, we'd like to thank our most recent Patreon supporters, Cecil Reich and Tasha L. Harrison. If you're interested in joining us and receiving additional content, including ad-free episodes, head over to our Patreon page today. The link is in the show notes. Lucky Lady Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real, or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the Family Friendly Unspookable... We look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts.